0: I'd like you to take a Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 11. It's page 958. We observe the Lord's Supper uh, about once a month here. And about once a year, I try to devote a sermon to explaining uh, exactly what the Lord's Supper is, what the purpose of it, uh, what's it for, uh, how is it instituted. And in God's providence we came to chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians as I've been preaching through 1 Corinthians today. Though the passage I should be on is the first part dealing with head coverings and authority in the church. Uh, There was no reason not to push that to next week Lord willing and deal with the latter part of the chapter which has to do with the Lord's Supper since we were having the Lord's Supper today. If you've not been with us uh, when we've been going through First Corinthians, uh, Corinth was a fascinating city. Uh, One of you gave me a a very good book uh, from when you were in Corinth and it was a large metropolitan area. It was a port city so you had people from all over the world. You had multiple nationalities and so forth uh, religions of all types and the Apostle Paul went there and spent 18 months there and he led people to Christ he established the church then he moved on now he is uh, in, in Ephesus and he is received letters from them he's writing this letter back to deal with some divisions in the church he's dealt with those in the first several chapters and also to answer some questions they had And um, oddly enough, the Lord's Supper, which is supposed to unify us, had become a point of division. So he gives this instruction. I'll read beginning verse 17 through the end of the chapter, hear God's word. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because you when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may not be, rec- be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One gets hungry, another gets drunk. so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask now that you would increase our understanding, help us to know how to prepare for the Lord's Supper so that our zeal is increased, our faith is strengthened, and use this time toward that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Carolyn Steele has written a book entitled Hungry City, How Food Shapes Our Lives. And in that, she writes this sentence. Few acts are more expressive of companionship than a shared meal. Someone with whom we share food is likely to be our friend or well on the way to becoming one. Although times and types of meals vary from culture to culture, The table, especially the dinner table, is typically the place where community is created and sustained. The dinner table is the place where hospitality is extended and conversation is experienced. I've mentioned before that I read of a study. I believe it was at the University of Chicago with some graduate students. And they were asked, what has been most influential in your life in shaping what you believe and why you believe it? About ethics, about truth, about everything. And the vast majority said what was used to shape my beliefs more than anything else was dinner, was conversation at the dinner table with the family. Meals are the place of acceptance. To invite a person to share a meal with you extends or shows forth some acceptance and concern for that other person. You're allowing that person into your world to get to know you. Uh, That's one of the reasons uh, the religious leaders condemned and criticized Jesus so harshly because of his meal companions. He ate with people that the religious people would stay away from. He ate with what they call the the publicans and sinners. Now, the Lord's Supper is a meal, and it's, it's not provided for physical nourishment, obviously. The little children will point that off often uh, out what what are you calling this a supper you know a little piece of bread and one swallow no it's a it's food for the gospel community Uh, it shows forth our unity it ties us together with the the universal church the church all around the world there are various views of the lord's supper and i know there are a variety of denominational backgrounds represented in this room uh, and i don't plan to go through all the different views but in summary here's just some of the major ones one is a memorial view that the Lord's Supper is simply a memorial and we understand by that view or they would believe that that Christ is present but only in the degree that my mind can remember him and think about him and ponder his death and his resurrection and and so that's that's the memorial view that it's simply a memorial to the to the work of Christ now the problem one of the problems I think with if, if your view of the Lord's Supper is just that, uh, it places all the emphasis on the person being able to recall and to remember. And so if you are real distracted or you are not inclined to remember what Christ has done, <clears throat> then the Lord's Supper really offers you no comfort or grace. It's, it's just an activity. Another view is that the Lord's Supper is just a ritual. A ritual. And it this, this approach believes that Christ is present in the elements, in the bread and in the wine, and through a, a mechanistic and mystical process, those elements are transformed into something that must be ingested. You must eat it and drink it to fulfill our religious obligations. Now, one of the problems with that perspective is it's very impersonal. It works regardless of a person's relationship with Christ. Unlike the first view where the memorial view where all the emphasis is put on the person in the mechanistic view or the ritual view all the emphasis is put on the elements, the bread and the cup. In the Reformed perspective, that coming out of the Reformation and what we hold to is that The Lord's Supper is spiritual communion with Christ, that he is here present spiritually in an unusual way, but not in a mechanical sense. And so as we eat and drink, we commune with God through the Holy Spirit. In the words of of the Westminster Confession of Faith, we feed upon his body and blood to our spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. So my aim today, I wrote this down last night. I was thinking, what do I hope is accomplished through this sermon? My aim is for you to gain a clearer and deeper understanding of how you should prepare for the Lord's table and partake of the Lord's table so that your joy is increased and your faith is strengthened. With those thoughts in mind, let's look at the passage. We'll just very briefly, with the time we have, And the first thing to notice in verse 17 and following is Paul begins with a rebuke. As I mentioned, he had complimented many things about the church in Corinth. But when he gets to this subject, there's a problem. Well, what was the problem? What does he rebuke them for? It was customary in New Testament churches to combine with the worship. When it says the term come together, it means officially, like to assemble they would combine a meal called the love feast, the agape feast, with the worship. Sometimes it would be before, sometimes it would be after. But when they observed the Lord's Supper, often the Lord's Supper and that love feast kind of merged together. Now he's not condemning them for that. He's not saying keep those things always separate. It's just as, as this happened, divisions began to arise. Like if And those divisions were more along socioeconomic lines. If you're invited to some kind of nice dinner party, you probably expect to see people you know that are from similar background that you have. And so the wealthy would be with the wealthy. The A-listers would be with the A-listers. The poor and needy would be excluded. That was the problem in Corinth. There were divisions showing up there around the meal where there was supposed to be unity. Now, the church is a place where we come and we eat a common bread and we drink from a common cup. And it shows, the Lord's Supper shows that Christ has conquered our natural divisions. And so the Lord's Supper is a visual symbol of the common Divisions and disunities of our world that have been conquered in Christ. And so, the beauty of the Lord's Supper is the fact that the divisions which are so common in the world that we live with every day are overcome. That they are not there. Now, here are some general lessons about the Lord's Supper before I proceed with the passage. The Lord's Supper is a covenant meal. Now, some of you, um, I realize, you may be new to church. And, and when I use the term covenant, that sounds real religious, but you don't know what it means. A co- it goes way back in history. A covenant in ancient days was a, a binding contractual agreement. And so it was a solemn promise confirmed with an oath uh, or with a sign And the sovereign in this case, a king or other leader or ruler, would give a sign and a seal which initiated the covenant relationship, such as our two nations are going to be at peace with one another, and we're going to make a covenant. And so here is the sign, here is the symbol of that covenant. I'm going to take this ring and I'm going to give it to you, and you're going to give me that ring, and this will be a sign of the covenant that's been made between us. But often, when the covenant was to be renewed, perhaps annually, they would do it with a covenant meal. They would sit down for a meal to recall the covenant. Now, in the Old Testament, that meal for God's people was called the Passover, the Passover feast. And every year, God's people, the Jews, would sit down and they would recite uh, what their covenant-keeping God had done for them. And what he had called them to do and they would commit themselves afresh to that and they would renew themselves and their relationship in the covenant with God. That was, it was like an anniversary. Now both of the Old Testament signs, there were two, circumcision and Passover. Those were the two signs that God gave about the covenant. They anticipated what the Lord would ultimately do in the future. Now, we as Christians, as New Testament believers, we no longer circumcise as a sign of the covenant of grace because Jesus is our circumcision. And he has circumcised our hearts by his Holy Spirit. We do not observe the Passover meal any longer, for it is fulfilled in Christ. He is the Lamb of God. He is the one who takes away the sins of the world. And so the Passover meal was looking forward to that Redeemer who, who was to come, who did come, and that was Jesus. But now, in light of what Christ has done, those two signs from the Old Testament have been replaced with two signs in the New. He has replaced circumcision with baptism. Baptism is the, a sacrament, Is when you take a normal, ordinary thing and give it special meaning. So we believe there are two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism has replaced Circumcision. Baptism is the sacrament of initiation. It's kind of like a wedding ceremony. I've done, I don't know how many, weddings in this church. As a pastor, I've led those. And so they come down and they, they make their covenant vows before God and these witnesses. Now, if after a year or so, they said, this couple that was married said, we, uh, we realize We thought we knew each other a year ago, but now we really know each other a lot more, and we love each other more. We'd like to get married again. So can we have the wedding ceremony again? Uh, I would say, mm, no, you don't need to. You only need to be married once. But you mean, like, what if two years later we love each other all the more, and we know that much more about each other? Shouldn't we get married again? Here's why I'm saying that. This may surprise some of you, but if you're a college student, it won't surprise you. It is getting very common for Christians to be baptized multiple times. And they use baptism. I've known people who have been baptized five, six, and seven times. And it's not that they came to faith. They came to faith early in, in life. And what's happen- what is happening in, in some churches is that baptism is being used for rededication like I want to recommit myself afresh to the Lord. Here's the deal. That's what this is for. The Lord's table is the sacrament of rededication. That's what has replaced Passover. Now, in rededication, I mean, don't we need to rededicate ourselves periodically to Christ? Doesn't your affections for him wax and wane and and your, your faith sometimes is stronger and sometimes it's weaker. Well, mine certainly is like that. And so God has instituted this table for that purpose. And that's one of the aspects of it, as we come to that for rededication. For baptism, initiation into the covenant community, the Lord's Supper for rededication. Now, one interesting side note. The Lord's Supper forces us to evaluate ourselves. If you're not a believer here today, in a few minutes I'm going to give some words of instruction before we partake. And I will say, don't, don't receive the Lord's Supper. In fact, you're warned not to do that if you know that you're not uh, a follower of Christ, if you don't believe in him. But receive him. It, it forces us to, to look at where we are. If you're a Christian, are you walking with Christ or are you in, is your heart hard toward God? So the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. Now back to the text, and just briefly. I'm just going to pick some high points. What do I mean a means of grace or a means of growth? Well, there's a historical grace. Verses 23 to 25, Paul says, I receive from the Lord what I delivered to you. He had direct instruction from the Lord about the Lord's Supper. And now he recalls what Christ had done that night with the disciples that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and so forth. Now, if you're not real familiar with the Bible, Jesus was arrested on a particular night. It was, it was really the early morning hours. Earlier that the day before, he and his disciples had been in this room, a borrowed room or a rented room, that was up off-ground level, and we call that the, what happened in the upper room. There are three chapters in the Gospel of John devoted to things Jesus said then. And they observed the Passover meal, which would have taken many hours to prepare and to observe. And Jesus knew what was going to happen to him that night. He knew that Judas would betray him. He knew that Peter would deny him. He knew that he would be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew that he would experience the worst kind of suffering a human could go through... Uh, with that form of capital punishment of crucifixion in that day. He knew all of this. It was clear before him. And so there's a phrase here I want you to notice. In the night he was betrayed. We typically read that quickly and don't pay much attention to it. That means that the night Christ instituted the Lord's Supper for those disciples and us as his disciples, he was thinking of us Now, if I knew if I was going to die tomorrow, a horrible death, I think I'd be a little preoccupied with myself. I don't think I'd be too concerned about what happens to you. And you probably wouldn't be concerned about what would happen to me if you knew that about yourself. But Christ's focus at that time is on them. On the night he was betrayed, he takes bread and wine and he institutes the Lord's Supper and he he gives these words of institution. So that's historical grace. It points back to what happened. Then verse 26 looks ahead to his, what we call future grace, uh, where he said, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when we come to the Lord's table, we're not only looking back and thinking back and recalling what Jesus did in the past, we know this is a down payment of a sort that he is coming back. Now, I don't want, I don't want to be crass, but I, I want to, you know, a lot, of, a lot of movies end where, especially if there's been a scheme that's successful, uh, whether it's one of the Ocean 11s or Ocean's 33 or Ocean's 41, those movies are way back The Sting if you're of another generation or those. And at the end, often the people that pull it off will toast one another. You know, like nobody knows what happened, but we were successful. In a sense, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, it's like he's coming back. He is coming back. Regardless of how down I may be or how hard my circumstances may be or how what I may be going through or someone you love may be going through, the, the broken heart you have right now, the grief you're going through, when you partake of the Lord's Supper, you are proclaiming that there is hope And there is salvation. That's what we are doing here. We are looking to the future and counting on God's future grace. So there's historical grace that's given to us. There's future grace. And then verses 27 through 28 is what I'll call personal grace. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, I've been asked about a phrase here that I've used and any pastor leading communions used that gets more misunderstanding than any other out of any sermons I've ever preached. And when people come to the church, they will hear this and some won't come back when they hear it. And that is the word worthy and unworthy. Now, I can't tell you what typically they hear that we invite you if you're worthy to come to the Lord's table. And I've had people tell me later, like, what? None of us are worthy. I said, I didn't say if we are worthy. It says if you partake in an unworthy manner. It's not talking about your heart there. It's not talking about your standing before God. It's talking about the way you partake of the Lord's Supper. And you can do that in an unworthy manner or a worthy manner. It's not talking about you being perfect or not. It has nothing to do with that. It's whether you have examined yourself, whether you have prepared yourself to partake of the Lord's Supper. So Paul is calling Christians to examine examine themselves, not to find reasons for which they are not worthy, because that's true of us all, but to find evidence of a repentant heart, evidence that grace is at work. I don't know who said it, but I wrote it down. If one is afflicted by sin, the Lord's Supper is comfort. But if one is comfortable with sin, the Lord's Supper is affliction. So we are looking, we examine our own hearts, not for perfection, but to see, boy, I need perfection. Christ has perfection. I need Christ. That's who I'm trusting in. And he wants us to come. And then in verses 29 to 34, I won't read it, but... We we also receive this grace corporately as a congregation, as a community of believers, and that's what he means in verse twenty nine. For he says, "Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself." I used to think, "Well, we're supposed to think about the body of Christ." No, he's talking about the Christian body. He's talking about the church. He's talking about the community of believers. That I don't take this by myself. That we are all one before him. We are all equal before him through faith in Christ. Don Carson, in his book, Love in Hard Places, writes, the church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. I think we ought to put that as on our stationery. First Presbyterian Church, a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. That's what we are. That's what the church is. Some of you know the name of Charles Evan Hughes. He was born in the 1880s. He died in the 1940s. Charles Evan Hughes was born into a Christian family. In fact, the father was a Baptist pastor. And as a young child, he received Christ. He believed in the gospel. And he remained strong in his faith and was a strong witness for Christ throughout his entire life. And that was a harsh arena because he was in politics. He served two terms as governor of the state of New York. He ran for president in 1921 and was defeated by Woodrow Wilson, but he also served on the U.S. Supreme Court and he became the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. While he was on the Supreme Court, he joined a Baptist church in Washington, D.C. And it was a custom in that church that to, for the pastor to recognize and invite the new members to come and stand in the front. On this particular day, and I guess they were in some kind of alphabetical order, but the first name that the pastor read out was a Chinese man named Ah Sing. Ah Sing, Mr. Ah Sing had been a, a work worked with laundry, and he had moved to Washington from San Francisco. So he came down the aisle and he stood on one side of the of the pulpit. And then the pastor read other names, and people came down and they kind of hesitated and then went over there, and then went over there, and then went over there. About a dozen people on this side, Ah Singh standing by himself on that side. And then he read the name of Charles Evan Hughes. Charles Evan Hughes came right down the aisle, stood right next to Ah Singh. Now, it's not real clear as to exactly what happened after that, but I read that he was asked later, Why'd you do that? And Justice Hughes said, because at the foot of the cross, all the ground is level. There's no difference between a Chinese launderer and a chief justice of the Supreme Court. Not in God's eyes. And when we come to the Lord's table, that is exactly what's being said. So a few more thoughts before we actually partake of the Lord's Supper. This is a time of strengthening we come to the lord's table john calvin said that the purpose of the sacraments of baptism and the lord's supper are like the pillars of a building now this building doesn't have pillars but he meant by that is that a building sits on a foundation and then you add pillars on top of that foundation to give more strength to the building our faith rests on the foundation of god's word and the work of christ the sacraments are like pillars that strengthen our faith. They are not the foundation of our faith, but they strengthen it. So as you feed on him by faith, he strengthens you. It is a time of rededication, as I said before. It is a time of self-evaluation. Now here's where I really want... Are y'all still with me? Okay, I know this is a little bit longer. I asked for more time today. This is the only church I've ever been a part of where we have communion and a sermon, and we finish in 60 minutes. And we'll almost do that today, but not quite. When I come to the Lord's table, I'm to commit to healthy self-examination. That's what Paul says. But this is often misunderstood, and that is that I should look for every area of my life. I should examine my relationship with God. I should examine my relationship with other people. And if I see sin there, oh, oh, you know, maybe I shouldn't come to the Lord's table. That is not correct. We examine our hearts and see, are there broken relationships I can resolve? Is there conflict with another Christian that I can, is there anything I can do about that, especially before I partake of the Lord's table? How is my heart toward God? Am I reading his word? Am I meditating on his word? How how am I doing in prayer? But the examination is not just to find all the areas where you fail. It is to look for areas of God's grace in your life. So you say, well, I don't see any areas. You're here, aren't you? That's God's grace. That's God's grace that you're here. Take of the Lord's Supper. So it's it's not that you're looking for any area where I'm in sin to refrain from the Lord's Supper. You're really saying, I want to look for any area where I see God's grace so that I can go and partake of the Lord's Supper. That's what Paul says. I've lost the verse, but when I read it just a minute ago, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Ah, I forgot. I didn't use it in the first sermon, but I saw it when I read it again just a moment ago. We are to partake. We examine first. If there's area to be repented of, we say, I'm going to repent of that. Lord, help me in this area. I want to rededicate myself to this and that. But the only thing that should keep you from partaking of the Lord's Supper, believer is if your heart is hard toward God and you are not repentant and you are not responsive and you don't care, you may even be under suspension from a church, under church discipline, Then, then don't partake. But anything short of that, Christian, God wants you to partake of this table for your own benefit. It's where he wraps his arms around us. As I mentioned earlier, if you're not a believer, don't receive this. It says you eat and drink damnation to yourself. Receive Christ. Use this time. Let the elements pass and use this time to, to pray and ask God to give you a, a new heart and to give you faith to believe what Christ has done. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we thank you that we're part of a body, uh, the body of Christ on earth. And this table is a... a a glimpse of what you said will be a great marriage feast in heaven. And we pray that, that you would be present and use this now to strengthen us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.